Yes, indeed. Here we are once more. I hope you're very well, especially if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and heading into your summer holidays. I hope you get all of the sunshine that you need after a difficult winter. My name is James Paniki. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the biggest and most recent stories in regulatory affairs. It's great to have your company again today. Now, as always, we have a lot to get through with the assistance of our team of reporters around the globe. In just over 10 minutes' time, we'll be crossing to Brazil to talk about what some key appointments to the country's competition regulator mean for both mergers and companies facing penalties for anti-competitive behaviour. First up, though, what to many look like the deal of the year has just fizzed out. Aon's 30 billion US dollar merger with Willis Towers Watson has collapsed with everything that that entails, including a $1 billion termination fee that Aon will have to pay to WTW. Now, we cared particularly about this because it was the first significant deal to face regulatory pushback since the Biden administration took power. And it was the first major development since President Joe Biden made his recent controversial remarks about the need to rethink the approach to antitrust. Yet, as our correspondent Curtis Eichelberger has argued very convincingly, the Department of Justice's success in opposing the merger is a sign of continuity with regulation in previous administrations rather than evidence of a new approach. Curtis joins me now from his home in Philadelphia. So, Curtis, uh, firstly, remind us what the deal was all about. What did the companies in question do and what was the logic behind the deal? Well, Aon and Willis Towers Watson are the second and third largest insurance brokerages in the world. I guess that begs the question, what's an insurance broker? Uh, It's sort of the middleman between a company and an insured. It's just like when an ordinary person hires an insurance broker to, to shop around for the best home and auto insurance package for their family. The broker finds you the best deal, collects the fee. It's a bit more complicated for big businesses, especially in Fortune Fortune 1000 companies, which were the focus here. Um, But that's essentially what they do. So um, if Aon and Willis were to merge, they would jump ahead of Marsh and McLennan to become the largest insurance brokerage in the world. Now, the DOJ claimed that competing brokerages didn't offer the largest business customers the same quality and services that the big three currently offer. It's what the antitrust uh, types call a three to two. Three companies serving the biggest U.S. businesses were going to be paired to two. So you lose the benefit of a third competitor. Now, what what sort of stuff do the biggest insurance brokers offer? Well, the government said they offered things like an extensive global network of offices, sophisticated data and analytics, a whole host of things, you know, knowledge across multiple types of employee benefits and risk management strategies, strong reputations, you know, uh, personnel with specialized expertise, Not to mention, the biggest of the big have offices all over the world with people who speak the local language and know the local laws, all under one seamless or so-called seamless corporate operation. In other words, they don't want to hire five brokerages with different internal systems and in different parts of the world and ask them to work together. So the DOJ reviewed the merger, and they determined that if the deal was permitted, it was likely to, quote-unquote, substantially lessen competition. That's uh, the language of the law. In five lines of insurance for the biggest U.S. companies with most complicated needs. Property casualty and financial brokering, health benefits broking, uh, actuarial services uh, for defined pension plans, uh, multi-carrier retiree exchanges, and reinsurance broking. That's where insurance companies actually go out 
and get insurance from even, even, even bigger insurance companies. Uh, Aon offered to divest some assets to resolve the government's concerns, but it wasn't enough. And the DOJ filed the, the final lawsuit to block the merger on June 16th, and then the companies abandoned the deal on Monday. Now, this was the biggest merger that the U.S. antitrust agencies have reviewed uh, during the Biden administration. What was the message that that sent to corporations and the antitrust industry? Well, you know, the, the, the decision to abandon the deal appears on the surface as a victory for the DOJ. But oddly, you know, it was also a victory for traditional antitrust enforcement. Here in the U.S., there's been a lot of hand-wringing and discussion about how the Biden administration was going to overturn antitrust enforcement with crazy new theories of harm and a radical, progressive antitrust agenda. But this week's victory went to the antitrust establishment as the deal was scuttled using a traditional antitrust law, Section 7 of the Clayton Act. It's the law most used in antitrust cases, and it has been used for years There were no boundary-stretching claims. There's no effort to establish new precedents. The investigation looked at market share and internal documents and past cases uh, and interviews with competitors, ordinary stuff. After all the hype, regulators followed existing law, held firm in their demands for divestitures to resolve their concerns, were prepared to put it in the hands of a federal judge to make a decision, and in the face of all this, the companies folded. It was altogether unspectacular. Okay, so what was the the primary issue that led to this um, to this going to court and eventually to the deal being abandoned? What was the what was the the main thing that we should be aware of? So, as I mentioned earlier, Aon offered remedies for these in these five relevant markets, and the government was said it was it was prepared to accept the company's proposed fixes in three of the five. So, the DOJ staff, Attorney General Merrick Garland and Acting Assistant Attorney General Richard Powers were willing to try and resolve the deal. But the government said Aon's offer didn't go far enough in the other two relevant markets, property, casualty, and financial risk broking for large customers, and health benefits broking for large customers. Now, to to illustrate the point, the government, in its complaint, said that even though Aon has over 100 offices in the United States and Willis has more than 80 offices, the companies proposed to divest commercial risk assets in only two offices in the United States and one in Bermuda. Some health benefits assets in only a few offices and a handful of additional employees who support these offices from other locations. And moreover, the government said that the assets, if divested, would require carving out individual customer contracts and personnel that would represent only a small fraction of the company's overall business. It's possible that if the companies agreed to the divestitures, it would make the deal not worth doing. That's one consideration. Or, that, or perhaps that Willis wanted to renegotiate the deal after its, its uh, end date expired. They could have been looking for a better deal here, put pressure on Aon. We don't know any of that for sure, at least not yet. What we do know is that Aon had to pay Willis a billion-dollar termination fee because they couldn't get the deal approved. Okay, now correct me if I'm wrong, but there are thousands of insurance brokers around the world. There are at least several hundred in the United States. Why couldn't the competition be replaced by one of those many other uh, businesses operating in those markets? That, that's exactly right. It's a good question. But there's an important distinction that was made by the government and even the companies themselves that big companies, we're thinking Fortune 1000, have special needs 
They can't be served by even medium-sized or, or reasonably large firms. The government said that the companies have deep talent across the full range of commercial risk and employee benefit products and services. And that allows them to, to give companies advice and insights that would not be possible for a smaller firm with a, with a narrower scope. And they have extensive global networks of offices that I mentioned earlier that facilitate you know, kind of a seamless worldwide services for these multinational customers. And they say they're also able to secure insurance companies' attention on behalf of their customers more easily and promptly uh, than could be, uh, could be, they could do for any individual customer or a small insurance broker. And I even told its board in 2009, pardon me, 2019, that it possesses a deep and breadth of data assets, customer relationships, and industry expertise that's not easily replicable, establishing a near-term competitive advantage. That was a direct quote. After the proposed merger, only Marsh would stand capable you know, of, of matching these, these capabilities. And that's where the government you know, drew the line. Okay, now finally, uh, the DOJ doesn't have any permanent political hires in place. In fact, I've discussed this in a podcast with one of your US colleagues just recently. So who oversaw this deal? And uh, could the way that these uh, deals are handled uh, change uh, once a permanent assistant attorney general is confirmed? And, and while we're at it, who is, who is in line for that job right now? So that's the million-dollar question. The, the, in this case, the career staff, uh, Powers, the acting AAG, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, they ran the show. Now, Garland had some antitrust background, but Powers, the criminal attorney, was kind of filling in. Uh, and the staff, you know, they should get credit, really, for performing the standard antitrust review on this deal. It was a straight deal. Now, the new guy coming in, Jonathan Cantor, he's a former FTC attorney, and he, he was co-chair of the antitrust group at the law firm uh, Paul Weiss. And he was recently nominated to the position, but he hasn't been confirmed yet. So that'll take some more time. The Senate does the confirmation. He has a a long history in antitrust. He was on the FTC team that reviewed Time Warner's merger with AOL. That goes back a number of years. Exxon's acquisition of Mobile. Kroger's acquisition of of Fred Meyer. Uh, What else? BP Amico's acquisition of, of Arco. He's also widely known to be a critic of Google and Facebook and the power that the platforms wield. And he's a long, he's very long, for a long time he's complained that the agencies have underused Section 2 of the Sherman Act. And that's a tool that the antitrust agency used to block acquisitions that would lead to a monopoly. Uh, in private practice, he's represented numerous companies, uh, including Microsoft in its acquisition of Nokia, Skype, and Yahoo's search business and for third party in the DOJ's review of Google's acquisition of ITA. So uh, he's got a long uh, and storied career. Uh, He's likely to be active. But the truth is, James, for any real change to take place, the sort of thing that, you know, people fear progressives, you know, real meaningful change. Antitrust leaders are going to need Congress to rewrite the laws. Real change only comes from the people. And by that, I mean representatives in Congress. And Democrats have proposed several bills, but they've all been met with skepticism and opposition by the Republicans. Uh, the two parties, as most people know, really are just struggling to get along. So, you know, can Cantor and his, his uh, deputies that haven't been named yet push a progressive agenda? Well, I mean, hey, he can certainly file more suits and try some novel arguments in relation to these platforms. But in the end, 
You know, as this, this case, this Aon case demonstrated, DOJ leadership still has to follow the existing laws. And in most cases, hey, that's enough. Yes, indeed. Look, Curtis, this deal has been such a roller coaster ride. Thank you for uh, for following all of the twists and turns. It's been great talking as always. I'll catch you next time. Thanks, James. Goodbye. Curtis Eichelberger, who covers mergers and acquisitions for MLEX. He was speaking to us there from Philly. And we'll post a link to his analysis of the Aon Willis Towers Watson deal at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just head for the appropriately named News Hub tab for all of the very best of our reporting and analysis, which will be right in front of you. Our subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of reporting on the now upended deal from around the world. And this was indeed a truly global operation. So there's input there from our reporters across several jurisdictions. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And still to come, what key appointments to Brazil's competition regulator mean for those doing business in the country. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast already, you can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Alexandre Cordeiro has been appointed to the presidency of CAGI, which is Brazil's antitrust regulator and tribunal. No stranger to the agency, Cordeiro is currently its superintendent, which means that he has been responsible for overseeing antitrust investigations. And now he will be taking on the management of the entire agency, something that presents certain challenges given CAGI's structure. This is big news in Brazil, it goes without saying, but it's also big news for our readership. Ana Paula Candil is an MLEX senior correspondent for Latin America, and she's based in our Sao Paulo offices. Now, uh, Ana Paula, firstly, what can we expect from Kaji's new presidency? Hi, James. So, Alexandre Cordeiro is a very conservative guy. Um, he talks a lot about preserving legal certainty, um, preserving Kaji history, and the agency jurisprudence. So I don't think he will make changes on the agency's policy management. And as he used to be the head of the superintendents, they, both of them used to work a lot together uh, with coordinated actions. He recently said that his priority will continue to be unilateral conduct investigations, but not losing sight of cartels. And during his time with the superintendents, he opened a few interesting unilateral conduct cases, um, but none of them have been decided yet. Uh, for instance, he opened a probe on the Google Android, uh, on food delivery app market, which Kaji has never uh, investigated before, and on the offering of bonuses to ad agencies by Broadcaster Global. But although he's very conservative, and he says he's not the type of guy that will come in uh, promoting lots of changes. He has, for example, issued uh, preventive measures, which is something that Kadi didn't do a lot in the past. Um, in, in these last two cases that I mentioned, he, he issued uh, orders prohibiting the companies from doing whatever they, they were doing. In the Broadcaster Global case, for instance, he prohibited the broadcaster from offering bonuses for the volume of ads that agencies allocate to the broadcaster. 
Um, and this is a very interesting case because this is a very common practice here in Brazil. Broadcasters, uh, they offer bonuses to ad agencies, but he, for some reason, decided to investigate this uh, recently. Now, we should explain for those unfamiliar with, uh, with regulation in Brazil, within CARGE there is a tribunal and that tribunal's members have uh, spent a lot of time debating how to calculate cartel fines and a majority now have voted for applying fines based on how much uh, companies have gained as a result of uh, the cartel. So it's a clear calculation. Now, that that outcome has been uh, somewhat surprising. So maybe, uh, Ana Paula, tell us something about uh, the issue that led to this change in the uh, in the jurisprudence uh, and uh, and whether or not uh, Cordeiro might help uh, to address this somehow. So changing jurisprudence is, is seen as a natural process, um, but the thing is that it needs to be done with cautious, specifically in this case, because if you change how the agency calculates its cartel fines, you will be changing um, how settlement payments are are negotiated as well. Because the settlement payments are based on what we call here the expected fine. So, for example, if I'm a company and I'm going to be fined, but I, I, I come in and say that I want to make a settlement agreement, Kaji uh, will, will calculate the settlement payment based on what my fine would be. So, if Kaji does this change without providing legal certainty, predictability, and in a very clear way, it may discourage companies and individuals from signing a deal with the agency. Um, and, and how could Cordato help address this? As I said, he's a conservative guy, so he obviously is against this theory of the advantage gained. I think that's because he is very cautious about uh, this theory um, that, that, that he would demand from his colleagues at the tribunal that any changes, if they are going to happen then they must be done gradually in, in a very clear way and, and with the most predictability mm. possible. Now, uh, Cordero is joining a fragmented uh, tribunal that I suppose more than ever has been asked to uh, review or has been itself asking to review merger approvals uh, that are issued by the agency superintendents. Now, if that becomes an ongoing practice, if that is the way things are done in future, how might that affect companies that need to notify their deals? There are two important things here that I would like to, to mention. Uh, first, I think that given this scenario, if this becomes a permanent thing, um, it's better to notify early in Brazil, considering that the tribunal has more often asked to review merger approvals from the superintendents. And second, Keep an eye on whether these requests from the tribunal are resulting in decision changes. For instance, let's say that a deal is approved today by the superintendents and and tomorrow a tribunal counselor asks to review such approval and the tribunal ends up blocking the deal. So companies must be aware of the risks of notifying a deal in Brazil and, and, and that means notifying early and trying to negotiate remedies early in the process, especially if it is a complex case. But the good news is that so far the tribunal hasn't changed any decisions approving deals from the superintendents, although they have asked more often to review those decisions. Mm. 
Okay, now there are other Kaja officials who are going to leave the agency soon, which obviously makes it hard to have a, a long-term sense of how things will develop uh, within the regulator, especially within uh, the, the, the Kaja tribunal. So maybe tell me something about the departure of Councillor Paula Azevedo from the tribunal and whether uh, that might bring with it a, a significant change in the way the agency will reach decisions on cases. Paula is an important counselor because she's one of the persons who brought up this theory of the advantage gained um, to the tribunal sessions recently. Of course, the tribunal, under a different composition in the past, it already debated on this topic. Um, but, I'm, but I'm talking specifically about this new composition formed the last year when counselors Sergio Havayani, um, Lenisa Prado, and Luis Braido joined the agency. Uh, with her departure, which will be February next year. Uh, it, it will really depend on how, um, on who will fulfill her position to know whether there will still be a majority voting for fines uh, based on how much companies gained with the cartel. Because today there are four councillors out of seven tribunal members voting for uh, fining companies based on this theory. Um, so three others don't support this, this theory. Uh, one of the, those three have recently left the agency, Mauricio Bandeira Maia. Um, and this new guy called Gustavo Lima, a deputy chief of economic policy for Brazil's presidency, he has just been appointed to fulfill Maia's position, but he still needs approval from the full Senate to take office. So we don't know um, how long his process of, of getting this approval will take. Um, if his name will really be confirmed and what he thinks of cartel fines calculations. So um, right now it's really hard to predict what will happen. And there is this slight majority formed with Councillor uh, Paula Azevedo. Now, Cordero was Kaja superintendent from 2017 to 2021, so he would have had to handle many investigations that are now at the tribunal for ruling. So that. I suppose, would rule him out of, of having a vote or having a say on how those things are decided, given that he would have investigated them. I just wonder, though, how becoming president will affect his voting on cartel and merger cases at the tribunal and how this might affect the agency's rulings. That's a very interesting question, because we've been talking about how Cordero's presence at the tribunal could affect rulings. But in fact, he is disqualified to vote on many cases, considering that he worked on many of them while he was the head of the superintendents. Um, he stayed at the superintendents for four years and issued lots of opinions on cases and even decided some of them. He recently said that he mapped out how many cases he won't be able to vote on, and they are about 80 cases, which seems a lot. So it's good to start thinking about how the tribunal will decide on those cases where Cordero will be out of the game. Mm. Ana Paula, look, thank you so much for your coverage of these developments. It will be interesting to see how things uh, pan out in Brazil. Let's talk again very soon. Thank you, James. My pleasure. Ana Paula Candil is MLEX's senior correspondent for Latin America, and she's based in Sao Paulo. And Ana Paula's analysis of these key personnel changes is very much online and is now ready for you to check out. Just go to mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com and head for the News Hub tab. 
And with that, sadly, we have to wind up today's podcast, but we will be back in your feed next week at the same time. And we are ploughing all the way through the Northern Hemisphere summer, so fear not. For now, though, from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for staying with us. I'm James Paniki. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.